So, uh, my name's Jim Dickinson. I uh, am the Chief Executive at uh, the Students' Union at UEA. Before then, I worked in various roles in NUS, both in Students' Union development and in um, policy. Um, I'm going to kind of partly respond to what we've seen so far, but partly try and locate some of the stuff we've seen uh, inside what some of us uh, know about students' unions and where they've come from and, and kind of wider debates about higher education to try and get underneath why some of these things are emerging as research findings. Uh, and you know, I'll try and look at these sorts of things. So obviously uh, Rachel's research to start with looks at the role of students and, and, and the, role, well, the role of their leaders. And I, I think one of the things that you have to do if you want to work out the role of student leaders is work out what the role of students has been and is, because I'm not sure it's constant and I think it's kind of contested. Uh, there's this thing about partnership which bubbles under, in, certainly around the, the press coverage of Rachel's work and, and so on. Um, and then there's these other things about social, social characteristics. I think one of the things we haven't talked about today is one of the reasons why lots of these things can change is about expansion and the expansion of the system has meant all sorts of things, uh, and try and look at some of these things about uh, political and student concerns. And I was asked to do this. Uh, I, I should try and base this in my own history in uh, both FE and HE. I did lots of FE policy work on student voice to start with at NUS. Uh, I am going to discuss a bit of NUS's use of student voice, which is very odd. I don't think I've ever publicly critiqued NUS on a platform before. I've done it a lot internally. <laughs> So I'm going to do a little bit of that, although once you've been on the inside, you're kind of prevented from ever really critiquing NUS properly. So my, my apologies in advance. I don't want to be taken away by Tony Pierce's flying monkeys. Um, I will try and puncture some of the rhetoric used to describe what's really information as democratic voice. I was asked to do that and try and comment on this professionalisation issue. But most of all, I want to try and do this. Look, here's what gets thrown at student unions and, and NUS. Uh, and it kind of floats in and out of some of the research and, and, and some of the comment and critique on the research and the press coverage and so on. First of all, this sense that student unions aren't radical anymore, which of course presupposes that student unions always were at one point radical in their character and nature. Uh, this sense that they've been fatally incorporated into a set of other agendas, as if they were all at once completely separate and... Uh, operating a, a completely different agenda. And, and really importantly, this sense that they've become dealers in the marketisation of HE, not just participants, but dealers in information, uh, active participants in this kind of um, heavily marketised uh, uh, problem. You know, this idea, crucially, that they've been tamed. And, and part of this is really, for me, I think, is depending on where you are in history and which institution you're at, students' unions have been located in different places. So sometimes they're part of the nonsense. Sometimes they're an internal critique of the nonsense that won't say anything out loud. And then sometimes they're an external challenge to the nonsense. But it seems to me that at any one time, a students' union can be all three of those things and always has and always will uh, float in and out of these different roles of being an internal delivery mechanism, an internal actor of critique, and an external knock on the door, an exposure of problems. 
And they're summed up in some of these quotes. So this quote in the middle here, student officers in the room will know that while I was at NUS, I was borderline obsessed with this quote. It's a quote from Digby Jacks, president of NUS in, in the early 70s. Uh, he'd got sick and tired of student representation being posited in system terms and argued, look, there's no point in any of this unless it changes things. And that sense of a row between student representation as being something that merely legitimised senior management action and student representation as being a means to delivery of change has been knocking around since the 70s. This isn't a new debate. And also, I love this quote at the bottom. So this quote at the bottom was published by NUS as a sort of useful way of thinking through the political and democratic role of student <coughs> unions way back in the mid-80s. And of course, it's simultaneously very clever and meaningless. So this idea that student unions can be autonomous, but within the corporate ambition of the institution, gives them a real sense and purpose, whilst also excusing the, many of their faults. So it, 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 it's a kind of clever confection. And this sense of the trying to pull between two different stools, I'll come back to. Now, before I really kick off, I just want to do a couple of bits, really. So one of the things I was, interested, uh, I was involved in before I left NUS for about a year was this student interest agenda, right? So you, the white paper comes out, it posits uh, Hefke as being a student champion. Uh, Hefke officials, uh, at a certain grade, convince ministers that champion is quite a scary word, and so it develops this student interest agenda. And it then spends a year trying to work out what on earth that means. And it involves some of us at NUS in trying to work out what it means. And we go round and round in circles trying to work out what it means. And, and one of the things I do is deploy some moral quandaries. So here's one. Uh, this is the Hefke watch list quandary. So you might know that every year Hefke publishes, or at least publishes for itself, a list of institutions that are, haven't got much money in the bank and haven't done very well financially. My question is, what is, it, what is in students' interests? Is it in students' interests to reveal who's on the list or not? So option A says, look, students should be told if their institution is financially failing, as the state and its apparatus should have to warn about failure and poor delivery, given the financial and opportunity cost of HE. I don't think that's dependent on students paying 9K. I think if, an if a student's about to give up three years of their life, if a student's about to do that, they ought to know if the institution could fall over. I think there's a really, really strong moral case that's not about consumerism. But there's another way of <laughs> looking at this, which says, look, students shouldn't be told if their institution is financially failing because the state and its operators should act to protect the interests of the staff and students at the HEI and maximise the chances of survival and recovery. The problem is, if you tell everyone the institution's failing, no one will go there. And I still, to this day, haven't worked out which of the two I agree with. But I know what Hefke thinks, and I know what the sector thinks. Uh, and that provides, I think, an interesting question that isn't about consumerism, but is about the nature of challenge and where it should be and what we're trying to do. This one I also think is interesting. The academic appeal question. So the process of judgment, validation and marking is sacred and should never be able to be challenged Lest the floodgates of illegitimate chancery. So if ever we broke the sacred principle of not allowing academic appeals, there would be thousands of students that would challenge their grades, say the, says the legend. And I can't remember the last time a student union or NUS had a serious go at trying to secure the right for students to appeal academically. Okay? 
Well, I think there's a really obvious, easy switch argument that says, look, the thing that matters to most students is judgment, validation, and market. It's the thing that really matters. It's the thing that I think they're really paying for, and we never talk about. Never talk about. But we know it's the bit they really care about. They're paying for that. Uh, and even if they're not paying for it, we're paying for that, the citizenry, through our taxes. And if people think it's been done badly, they should probably be able to appeal, shouldn't they? Partly because I'm guessing that in lots of cases, it probably has been done quite badly. The thin fig leaf of double marking that doesn't really exist, and the marking that's done late into the night by a heavily stressed academic. And I know they're heavily stressed because I hear this from UCU all of the time. So... There's a real quandary there that I don't think is as simple as viewing the interests of students either from a consumerist perspective or a kind of activist democratic perspective. <coughs> anyway, to try and get under the skin of this, we need to do a little bit of history, I think. Um, I'm stealing here from uh, another member of staff at NUS who knows lots about the kind of history of student unions, but I'm going to just draw a few bits out. Uh, we should bear in mind, really, that Italian higher education, where it all started, was democratic in character. Students got together with academics and decided what they should be taught. The French version said something very different. The academics knew best and put courses on for students to attend. And what happens in the UK is England nicks from uh, France and Scotland nicks from the Italians. And so this sense that Scottish HE is more democratic in character and that English HE is more you'll get what you're given in character continues right through the ages. And I think you can even spot it now when you look at QAA documents and things that tumble out of governing bodies in Scotland versus England. In Scotland, there's a, there's a student representative almost from the start, albeit often not an actual student, this sense of the rector. There's Gordon Brown in the middle there in the in the photo as the rector of the time. And it kind of doesn't pan out like that in England. And what broadly happens is this. In England, there's lots of unions that are focused crucially around facilities and clubs and societies. So the English model says, look, there's a kind of social and recreational bent to all of this that occasionally also does some representation. In Scotland, it's very different. There's an academic representation bent to this that occasionally does some uh, social and recreational. Now, sure, they come closer and closer together by the time you get to 2014, but that's where they start from, and of course it's in the walls. In some of these buildings, literally in the walls. So, the role and function of student genius has been pretty constant, right? Clubs and societies and recreation. Uh, this sense of community work, uh, are often uh, uh, done through charity fundraising. This sense of representation and voice. And then this unofficial function of campaigning and activism. And the thing I'd say about this collection is that not only does it start from different places, depending on where, whether you're in Scotland or England, but also that fourth function, no one would ever fund unless the other three were being funded. So one of the questions that people often put to me is, why do you think it is that uniquely to the UK, those four functions are loaded together into the student union? Because they're not in the US. Student government is separate. They're not around Europe in the same way. Why are the four loaded together? Well, I'll tell you why. It's really important that we keep the four loaded together. Because without the scam of the first three providing the money, we couldn't funnel money into campaigning and activism in the way that we have over the years, both through the National Union of Students and sometimes through <coughs> student unions. So it's a great scam, this sense that we are 
charities doing something good and educational that also allows us to siphon a bit of money into what's basically a giant left-wing bunch of stuff. Okay? Um, so lots of this carries on. I can, I can flip through some of the history. I, I do think this bit's very interesting. You get to about 1968-69, and this view of students changes. So before then, this is the view of students, and then suddenly in the 60s, the view of students changes. Now, a few things to say about this. First of all, student unrest in the UK was never really about politics. It was always about discipline. But it nicked some of the tactics of Europe in order to look like it was about uh, the rest of Europe. It never really was. And two things were going on throughout the 60s. There was a really careful process of negotiation going on about the role of students and student unions and student representation behind the scenes. And then above the surface there was, look, we're doing what the Europeans are doing and having big political rows. So if you take bullet point three, in 1968, Jack Straw is heavily involved in drawing up a protocol with the CVCP, now Universities UK, about the role of students in institutional decision making. So he's behind the scenes working with TV, the CVCP saying, look, students should be consulted on things and represented on certain bodies and should have equal weight on other types of bodies. Publicly, he's challenging the NUS leadership for power, talking about student power, and sweeps to power in the 1969 NUS National Conference by heavily politicising NUS. So simultaneously, he's behind the scenes doing the we ought to work through the institutional decision-making stuff, and publicly he's saying power to students, let's take over the institutions, and so on. And it gets to the point where, in 1969, NUS National Conference, the year he gets elected, rejects the CBCP agreement. Not that it matters, because most institutions then put it in place. Uh, whilst he goes on to look like a political firebrand. And that's very clever, because what that involves is a really talented student politician doing both what might be considered to be legitimate through the institution work and also heavily oppositional, round the edges, political work. Okay? And we'll come back to a theme, we'll come back to how that straddling works a little bit later. What's really astonishing, right, and the, this is what caught my eye, if you look at the text of Straw's speech the year he wins presidency in 1969, he says something that's almost exactly the same as this quote. And this quote, though the NUS press officer won't have known it when they drafted it for the student officer that was being asked for a quote in response to Rachel's report the other week, is almost exactly the same. So Straw argues at Conference 69, look, there have to be some moments where we work through the institution and get seats on committees and have equal weight in decision making. And there also have to be moments where we bash on their doors and uh, take political action. And then three or four weeks ago, <laughs> or five, two, four, two, three months ago, that quote is delivered by the current Vice President Union Development at NUS in response uh, to Rachel's report. And so this sense that this thing is new, that students have somehow been incorporated in a way that they never were, probably just isn't true. Uh, student action, of course, takes many forms. Sometimes it's amusing. Uh, sometimes it's not. Um, there is this sense in the 70s of, of a lot of mass stuff, but I, but I mean the 80s are very interesting, I think. So do students' unions get caught up in a heavily political argument in the 80s? Yes. Uh, and two things go on, really. Uh, Thatcher and successive education ministers believe that students' unions are part of the problem in HE, and so abolishing students' unions and taming students' unions becomes part of the HE agenda. 
in a way that it hadn't become before. And so suddenly it looks, uh, certainly to those of you that were around in the 80s, as if students' unions were under attack at the time and looked more political than perhaps they really were. In truth, they were doing what they were always doing, doling out money to clubs and societies, putting on social events and running the occasional campaign with the occasional student officer in the occasional institution. It will just have felt different. Um, 1992 is also very interesting. So this sense that students are consumers and NUS in the past three years has led students into consumerism. 1992, you'll remember John Major's Citizens Charter Initiative, which is one of the first attempts at trying to triangulate the role of the consumer in a market with the role of a citizen. Uh, Major launches a series of charters, and there's the sort of, you know, motorway driver's charter that leads to the Cones hotline, and uh, uh, NUS gets wind that there's going to be a student charter. So NUS writes one itself it, it, and, and whacks it out three weeks before Major gets his out but puts into the Charter a load of genuinely democratic rights, like being able to have a voice and well-funded student unions. So NUS at various points triangulates, jumps on a bandwagon, twists it to its own end, and then runs with it. The danger is that sometimes the tail starts to wag the dog, the twisting goes too far, and people forget the neat conceit that has been delivered. And again, we'll come back to that. But perhaps one of the most important reasons for... Uh, student unions trying to protect themselves and NUS trying to protect itself happens in 1992, 93, 94. A completely idealist, bankrupt uh, major government goes at student unions and NUS hard and tries effectively to abolish them. And so a really successful piece of work is done in, two, in, in 1992, 93, 94 at saving them. Uh, there's a nifty bit of bandwagoning. Since then, we, there have been two major images of students, really, in the press. One is the, is the kind of attachment of students to the 90s lad culture hedonism thing. And this still persists in the Daily Mail when carnage comes to town. And then one is this sense, not, not uh, uh, perhaps a few years ago, of students protesting on the street. And there was a lot of fetishisation of youth protest three or four years ago. And yeah, it did involve a lot of people on that big day in November, but it still wasn't a lot of people in comparison to the number of students in higher education. It was probably the same number of people that has ever been involved. So, you get here, right, this bunch of dilemmas throughout the years that NUS, crucially, has often tried to triangulate. Pupils and masters, many and few, democratic and hierarch hierarchical models of higher education, liberal and utilitarian, partners and consumers, and so on. And so on. And I just want to try and get underneath one of them. Students as consumers. So look, we're often on the hunt for the right analogy, right? Let's see if we can nick an analogy from someone else. Here's the first one. Students as co-producers of educational outcomes. We've all heard this before. This sense that students co-produce an educational outcome. And that partnership generates the outcome. Uh, students are in partnership with academics. They work with them to generate uh, knowledge and work and so on. And then collectively, student unions are in partnership with the institution, which involves the academics. So you've got this collective thing going on, this kind of individual thing going on. What's interesting about that partnership, I think, is that it's a challenge to the usual analogy. So one of the analogies in use over the years, definitely in use by the student left and by the trade union movement, has been the idea that students and academics together represent labour and the institution represents capital, that kind of fairly basic Marxist analysis of power relations inside an institution. And so I don't blame lots of people, particularly academics, at being nervous at lots of this, because it kind of messes with this. And this is important, not least in the middle of a pay dispute. <laughs> yeah. 
But there are others. Students as patients. Students as clients. Students as infants. The infantilisation of students and the need to take account of their emotions and how they feel and whether they are satisfied. And then, of course, this idea of students as consumers. And let me just stop on students as consumers. So, uh, registrar at Nottingham, writing in the time, or, or speaking at a Westminster Forum event the other week. So, uh, he said he was confused by the approach of the National Union of Students to student empowerment. On the one hand, they rightly asked for students to be partners in and co-creators of education, but their enthusiasm for consumerist legislation, the idea that buying a degree is like buying something at Argos, seems to be quite at odds with that, he said. <coughs> Bloody cheek. Let's pick Paul apart for a minute. Paul is a powerful, influential <laughs> university administrator. He's in charge of complaints at Nottingham and the relationship with the Students' Union. He knows damn well that students don't think they're buying a degree. When you go into Argos, you're buying a running machine that may result in you being fit. Students know they're not buying a degree. They know they're buying some things that could result in a decent education as long as they put some effort in. And not only is it not like that, so not only is it therefore not like <coughs> buying a degree, but students also know that in some ways it kind of is like buying a degree. There's a catalogue, a really glossy catalogue. Uh, there's a finance <coughs> and all of that sort of stuff. But perhaps most <coughs> importantly, the intervention from the Competition and Markets Authority, this is why they're getting involved, right? So this is the latest report that came from the CMA. So they have said, they found <coughs> evidence of students being given poor or misleading information about courses. So being promised one thing and then getting something else on arrival. They found some problematic practices such as, such as dropping parts of courses and or hikes to fees after enrolment. So you'll promise academic A or module B, it never materialises. And worse, particularly for international students, you're promised you'll pay 17000 and you end up paying 21000 uh, Slow and inaccessible complaints procedures despite the existence of the OIA and the lack of arrangement should a university or course close. So we've got a regulator that's concerned about that from a student's perspective. And it's that that's being branded as terrible consumerism, and this is why NUS is evil. I'm not sure that's fair. And I'm certainly not sure it's fair from a man that powerful, when what we're dealing with here is individual students experiencing this that aren't powerful. So yes, Paul is powerful, the institution is huge and powerful, it sits in judgement over the student and their future, it will always defend itself, even if it likes to think of itself as benign. And so this type of regulation or legislation just tips the scales. And I was listening to Radio 4 the other night, listening to the new General Secretary of the TUC, Francis O'Grady, saying, look, why do trade unions exist? They exist to tip the scales a bit. Fundamentally, they exist to try and give those who haven't got power a bit more power. And so the idea that all of this is problematic and that student leaders shouldn't be dealing in it and talking in it because it gives students a bit more power, I'm at least uncomfortable with, if not heavily critical of. His quote at the end, by the way, is this. This is how he ended his presentation at the road. My suspicion is we will end up with this bizarre duality, where on the one hand we're expected to treat students as their equal partners in the academic enterprise during their studies, but around them they have a panoply of protective measures which they'll deploy on a highly selective basis if they don't get what they want. How awful. But look, the relationship with the institution is transactional. It provides things as advertised. And I think the institution then facilitates a partnership between academic and student. I don't think students are in partnership with their institution at all. I think that's nonsense. 
I think students are in partnership with academics and the institution facilitates it like a kind of cupid. Now, sure, the union and university can work in partnership, although I'm in partnership with my wife. That doesn't always mean getting on, believe me. <laughs> the student-institution relationship isn't one of partnership, but where does that get you then? I think it gets you to a rewrite of this quote. My hope is we'll end up with this perfect duality, where on the one hand we facilitate treating our students and our academics as equal partners in the academic enterprise during their studies, and around them they have protective measures which they can deploy if we fail to live up to our promised expectations. What's wrong with that? That's okay, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> but this idea, this constant critique of student consumerism, the moment students have got more rights, the moment students start to wield their rights or go to their representative to try and claim more rights, is everywhere. Student consumerism has become common in educational systems, says one guy I pulled out this morning. Students are increasingly vocalising their needs. God forbid! Uh, as customers of education service rights, students expect to be able to voice their opinions about the quality of service they're receiving. Yeah, that's okay. That is different to saying I know best about my marks than even then. And look, here's how Rachel from NUS, probably thanks to Debbie, but maybe not, uh, then came back at Paul the other week. Sure, we disapprove of an unhealthy attitude of consumerism, but she lamented the lack of higher education legislation since tuition fees was tripled. meant that the OIA lacked the powers it needed, leaving consumer legislation as the only other means of address, providing students could afford a lawyer. She said the university should fund students genius to provide free independent advice to students. Yeah, that's okay. I don't think that's consumerist. I just think that's okay. So look, exit and voice, we've all been here, we all know the Hirschman stuff, right? Exit, that Adam Smith invisible hand thing where buyers and sellers are free to move silently through the market, will never work in higher education, so of course we've got to go for voice. Political, and at times, confrontational. And that seems to me to be okay, and it doesn't seem to me to be fundamentally consumerist. Um, now, this I think is uh, fascinating. This, is, this quote is from 1999 in the Times Higher. Students are paying customers now says the Times Higher in 1999, tonight we're going to party like it. And as predicted, they're becoming more exacting in this, they're being egged on by the National Union of Students and the QAA. The NUS must hope this issue will help re-establish its credibility when campus scepticism is growing as to whether the union represents value for money. So this sense of NUS and students' unions jumping on a bandwagon in order to do democratic voice uh, comes through a lot. Now, let me just say briefly, have I switched that? No, it's still on. Am I still on? Yes, no. I've broken it. Somewhere. I think you're okay. I mean, yes, because I, I think they're recording. Right, so we should just reflect briefly on this sense of where this has come from from a big public policy perspective. So uh, Blair takes all of this stuff about markets, and because people are going, markets are a problem, he needs something, he needs a feeling. So uh, in, in order to kind of posit the market actor as someone okay, they have to be given some things. They have to be given data, choice, complaints become a big thing. And what happens at that point, certainly in FE, we go, right, let's jump on. We should jump on this. What's wrong with this? This is okay. We can twist it to our own ends. Uh, and this is what I would call precarious bandwagoning. So it's effective at the time, and then it's a bit scary a few years later. So let me give you an example. Last summer, NUS ran a course for education sabbaticals. Okay? And one of the days was part funded by the Hefty Student Interest Function and was chock full of QAA, HEA, NSS, quality, nostrum nonsense. Right? And then on another day, the day before and the day after, 
there's a load of critique of markets, a history of higher education, and a load of political responses. So the idea is the student officer walks out, knowing that that's where the money's come from and the legitimacy's come from, but here's how they play with it. Yeah, this sense of precarious bandwagoning. <coughs> there are some dangers, though. At the back of that, sometimes they get lost in one or the other. So for a good two or three years, there was a bunch of student union education sabbaticals that proudly called themselves quality geeks. Uh, people who were wearing QAA badges and went, I'm really into quality assurance. <laughs> we used to look at them strangely in the corner because, of course, the staff, we couldn't critique them. <laughs> and then there were some other people who go, all of, this non all of this quality stuff is nonsense. I'm a political activist. I'm into defend education. Uh, and I think that all, everyone involved in all higher education positions is part of the neoliberal conspiracy. And it seems to me that both of those things are very good. Both of those things kind of fail. Because uh, these people often get kicked out of the room. And these people are in the room and have got nothing to say. <laughs> and you want them in to then go and do something naughty or radical or different. You want them to do the Digby Jacks thing, don't you? To use the things they've got in order to wind up or subvert or critique or challenge or change. And we do the same in NUS in FE. So in FE, 15, 20 years ago, we needed to fund and establish FE student unions. We nick a load of ideology, expert learners, voice, payback, citizens. We retrofit it into this concept called Learner Voice. And suddenly, one year, we're doing student governors training in FE. We're upstairs from grown-ups governors training downstairs. We're being gleefully cynical and trying to posit students as this kind of cheeky troublemaker. Whilst taking the money from this, from the people who wanted effective governance. Of course, this becomes a problem when then all the relevant people disappear. And at some point then it gets butchered. So at one point the government launched this thing called the National Learner Panel, which was a kind of a, a, a Bill Rammel sponsored version of Head Boy and Head Girl, where the only thing that students ever really get to discuss is how behaviour management is done in further education. So it's dangerous, this precarious bandwagoning, because you can get pulled, and when the tail starts to wag the dog, you forget what you were trying to pull off in the first place. But it's kind of the only show in town. And here's how it manifests itself now. Marketisation and increased fees, NUS and student unions as voice actors. This sense of the need to become indispensable to stop 1992 and 93 and 94 happening again. Student unions as a kind of occupation and apprenticeship. Uh, and then these senses of challenge around operational and delivery and financial and infrastructure. And this sense then of bandwagons. So here's the educational bandwagon. Patient, client, and learner voice, engagement, co-production, skills, key transferable skills, citizenship, and student interest. That provides the money, and people say, well done. And one of the things about coming to work every day is that quite often you need the money to fund what you're doing, and you want people to say, well done. So no wonder student unions in NUS have jumped on that bandwagon. The danger is the bandwagon goes out of control, and it no longer becomes about effective challenge. NUS, interestingly, occasionally tries some other bandwagons. So occasionally NUS will say, well, it's not about this, it's actually about trade union organising. And because that doesn't provide the money and people in institutions don't go well done, it never catches up. Uh, a few years ago it was all about community organising and it's back to community organising this year. So Debbie will know NUS is doing lots of stuff on community organising and it won't catch on. And I feel sorry for it, but it won't catch on. And then activism was a big thing three or four years ago because it doesn't provide the money and it doesn't make people go well done. And you have to do those two things in order to survive as an organisation. And organisational survival is what this is about. And that leads to some failures, right? So look, I would argue the failures kind of go like this. Accepting that individual rights and across-the-board standards mean consumerism. I don't think they do. 
means that often students' unions don't know what to argue for for students, and so go for reactions and responses to what's put in front of them. Not providing the tools to analyse and challenge strategic and policy stuff, and this is a failing of NUS, it always was when I was there, and it still is. Not helping students' unions to critique what's really going on in higher education. Uh, uh, leads to this other problem, which is, look, governance is already terrible in higher education. If any of you have been in the room in any governing body, in any part of any mission group, you'll know they're not really doing educational character and mission. They're fiddling about round the edges. Yeah? Everyone drifts, follies are easy, and NUS isn't close enough in order to really support genuine challenge. That's a nightmare, and I have no idea how you solve this. It's not a critique of the people. It's just genuinely very hard. One of the other bit is accepting that academics are magical through partnership with UCU. Uh, NUS has tended to believe that academics are magical over the years. And the trouble is many of them hate teaching and many of them are bad at it. And what we do about that, I don't know, but we need to find a way of doing something about that in a way that isn't about bullying. Uh, and that's not about consumerism either. It's just that some hate teaching and some are bad at it. And that's bad when you've given up three years of your life and so on. And then allowing genuine challenge to be passed off into the wilderness. There are people who turn up to university who really want to challenge things. And instead of student unions and NUS going, you're great, they tend to go, you're mad, you're weird <laughs> trots, you're the left, get out. They lose at NUS National Conference, they're bullied away, they occasionally pop up at Sussex or Goldsmiths or Birmingham, but never anywhere else. And they're really talented. And do you know what? If they were trained and used and developed and so on, they could be very effective critiques, but they're not because of the kind of character of having to win the student union election and the sense of popularity contest that is inside each place. I just want to talk about three other things before I stop. First, challenge. There is this sense of the need for challenge at institutional level. And I think there's some things that are going unchallenged, where the money's being spent and why. The staffing and resourcing of courses, really dodgy franchising stuff, uh, poor facilities and really bad management of the delivery of facilities, hidden course costs across the piece, ICT being delivered really badly. It's really difficult, that stuff, and it's the stuff that matters, and if student unions aren't going to do it, I don't know who is. But I accept that being bought into all of that quality stuff stops them being able to intervene at that level. And that's what I mean when I say I think someone somewhere has to assist student unions and student officers to do that. But I just want to briefly reflect on student unions before I finish. Um, I think student unions have had three rings of agendas. And what I mean by that is the stuff they've talked about to each other and in terms of their development has changed. So in the 70s, it's very clear that the agenda is about getting input on committees as a way of stopping demos about discipline that's being done badly. Okay? And that, that goes right through all of the writing and the literature and so on. In the 80s it becomes about advice and alcohol. So the licensing laws change, they all open giant bars and they open an advice centre. In the 90s, some of you may remember an initiative called Enterprise in Higher Education, launched by the Thatcher government as a way of kind of hiding some deeper cuts. And part of it is about key skills development. And student unions jump on that bandwagon and go, well, running a club or society isn't about fun anymore, it's about skills. Uh, and that hadn't really existed in the same way until then. In the noughties, student unions are about education and representation. And in the, in the tens, hyper-diversity and partnership. And look, some student unions got stuck. <coughs> <laughs> 
Uh, mine, certainly at UEA, got stuck around here. <laughs> really carry on. Uh, but this bit, uh, this bit is a funny little blip. So the death of the student union bar isn't that important in the wider context because it only really existed from about 1984 in a big way. And it messed around with the political economy of student unions in terms of the amount of money it generated, but died as soon as the private sector worked out that you could make money out of students too. The role of the student union senior manager, therefore, has changed with the tree rings. In the 70s, this sense of the permanent secretary, the guardian of the constitution, having an administrative focus is there. The general manager of the 80s, the Gordon Britas of the piece, running the leisure centre. Uh, the chief executive of the 90s, bringing order to chaos. Uh, the current, which is this sense of planning and relationships and horizon scanning, this, this strategic focus, I actually don't think any of those are any good. And that has to be a kind of policy focus, assisting students to work out what is in their interests, this stuff about challenge. But that's really hard, because people are trying to do all of this stuff as well. But these people are extraordinarily important and very powerful in the culture, and hidden. They are hidden. And their, their, their bureaucracy below them are hidden, except at the kind of operational bar staff or advisor level. So, just before I finish then, just bear in mind the scale of this thing. This is what's going on. Yeah? It is a unique model because it combines social and recreational with representative. And the point about that is it simultaneously acts as an opportunity to funnel money into labour clubs and activism societies and community organising in a way that's being done through registered charities in the ambition of UKHE. There's not a lot of right-wing work going on, not explicitly right-wing. Quite difficult to be a UKIP society. So there's a kind of scam that's continuing to go on that's important, and it will probably never be more explicit than that, because that would destroy the scam. Uh, let me just get to the governance bit. Uh, yeah, sorry, let me just flip through here. Can you believe all this was in here? Uh, I just want to get to this bit. The one bit of academic work I have actually done on this, rather than just kind of waxing lyrical, is on interests and how boards work. And here's what the normal board does in the voluntary sector, right? It maximises performance and success, it sets targets for managers, it has formal and legal accountability and compliance, and it resolves competing interests. Okay? And what I mean by that bit at the bottom is I'm from I'm living in Watford, there's a homelessness charity in Watford, and that, that, that charity's got to work out whether to serve the people at North Watford or South Watford, to work out whether to serve the short-term or long-term homeless to do prevention or cure, and to work out what the people that are homeless in Watford need, homes, or blankets, or shelter, or toothbrushes, or love. It has a set of choices which are about interests. And the thing about the resolution of competing interests is it comes in many forms. It can come in researching to what students want, uh, having some direct experience from students, involving beneficiaries in decision-making, deliberation, elections, debate, motions, and consultation. The problem is the study of governance is concerned almost ex exclusively with boards themselves, their structure, power, culture and interactions. And the problem is the democratic aspects of many types of organisations then get marginalised, but it's the democratic aspects that kind of still survive in student unions. In student unions, this stuff isn't supposed to be being done in the boardroom. It's done through debate and elections and union councils and messy consultations and surveys, some of which are well written and some of which are not. Some of which are dominated by white, middle-class, undergraduate boys because they tend to have larger and bigger shoulders and some of which are very clever because they get at pockets of students that aren't already there. 
The critical thing, though, I think about all of that is at least this is done in public in student unions, and it's supposed to still be being done in public in universities, that sense of the academic uh, stuff being done separately to the rest of the governance. But I will tell you this. This stuff and this stuff has got loads and loads of models, loads and loads of money, and loads and loads of heroes behind it. This stuff looks messy, everyone hates politicians, people think that their elections are horrible. This stuff is discredited. Heroes? Villains. And so that sense of drift to here inside student unions isn't just being made up. I accept that it's real. This sense that the administrative leader is the hero to try and emulate rather than the political leader. This sense that you will go on corporate leadership training rather than political leadership training is in there because this stuff is in the political economy of the whole thing. And that gets you kind of here. In the end, it is the political economy, stupid. Student unions are heavily dependent upon their HEI. The mid-80s and the mid-90s was an anomaly in terms of commercial income. Uh, and student unions have always had this problem about biting the hand that feeds. Um, and the student union chief executive, therefore, has a profound impact on the purpose and culture. Uh, they do have the money, and they do get to say what's good and bad. It is managerialism. It is a t partnership tone. Uh, they do talk about branding and so on. But I'll also just say this. Without student union chief executives being sorted out over the past seven or eight years, many unions were shit. HEIs didn't want to intervene. Scared student union officers didn't know what to do about it. And better student union chief executives is the only thing that sorted it out in several HEIs. So even at the end, you have a tension between this sense of cultural drift away from democratic towards this sense that without these people, they would have been even worse. And perhaps they, me, some of my chief executive colleagues in the room are blind to their power and impact and blind to the hero narrative that bedevils leadership and democracy and HEIs and managerialism and institutions. And there's a real danger in that. I just want to end on this. For those of you that didn't realise just how far some of this managerialism and corporate total quality management has gone, that isn't made up. That is the NUS Quality Student Unions model. Uh, because NUS can't possibly say out loud to its members that student unions are, in membership are bad, there are only three judgments. <laughs> good, very good and excellent. And student unions are rated on a whole series of things in a quality model. It goes much further than HE. Much further. But do you know what? It's also a really clever piece of bandwagoning and triangulation. Because one of the things that is judged is the quality of representation, creating change, campaigning, representing members, causing trouble, uh, what changes have been made in the institution as a result of the union's work, is it intervening at a policy level, is it getting to hard to reach groups and so on. So even at the very end, even in the last little bit of triangulation, even when student unions have gone into the mouth of the devil and become <laughs> the total quality management whores that they never thought they would be, they're bandwagoning and subverting. They're trying to do the right thing with the tools and nostrums and money and approval and power that's being handed to them in order to survive. I just want to quickly get away with a little bit of critique about NUS and then we'll have two. The first law of NUS is that NUS is good and NUS must be defended. <laughs> and look, that's because NUS and its members have been attacked. 
it is on a constant hunt for legitimacy and funding and there is this sense of pretenses and square pegs and round holes and so on. But I'll just give you two examples. NUS has been heavily involved over the past year in this regulatory partnership group thing. It was just as I left and will have been intervening since. Poor Debbie and others will have been dragged to meetings as the HE sector tried to pretend it was possible to regulate itself without any external regulation. Uh, the sector, of course, responded by saying, look, it's not about us, it's about those private providers. And swiftly, well, actually very slowly, ground the whole project into the ground and got it off regulating current HE and got it onto regulating private HE very cleverly in the way that academics and bureaucracies only ever can. But the tragedy is, NUS would have done lots of work in there and intervened, but nothing of real interest has come out for students. And you could argue that NUS could have spent much more time working on both the coalition and the opposition around real regulation of students in order to avoid some of the stuff that's come out in The Guardian over the past couple of weeks in the official part of the project and to fix some problems that go on in traditional HE in the unofficial part of the project. You could argue. And then the NSS. Do you know when the NSS was invented, NUS was given money to encourage response rates and has always had a member of staff to encourage response rates. Great. Uh, it also has another function, the staff in NUS. They get student unions to notice their results and then use them as a stick. So NUS is the ultimate flag waver for the NSS value and use, you know, the willing cheerleader of consumerist culture. But you know what it's also done? It's created a research agenda in student unions for the first time, rather than the interests of white middle class kids that won a popularity contest always winning out. Non-traditional students are no better understanding <coughs> pockets like nursing and teaching in many institutions. Things have dramatically improved. So is it so bad? So these are my conclusions. Bandwagoning is important because for the UK student movement, it has provided the opportunity to survive. However, it also provides an opportunity to be worried because of threat. There are tails and dogs. It's dangerous when the tail starts to wag the dog. Uh, elections generate the most popular bland people winning. But my God, at least they're democratic. Consumerism, as branded, is often excellent. Power and challenge to authority is a part of the romance and purpose of higher education. I don't think there are many alternatives. I think what we've got is the least worst option. And remember, it's vitally important if we do nothing else to protect the great scam that large amounts of money through higher education into these bodies called charities actually allows us to fund a load of fun and political stuff for students every day. Thank you.